Thank you, Dr. Day, for that, that great reminder that were it not for God's grace, we certainly would have no hope. We're going to read some passages of Scripture together. You'll find them on your screen. You can also find them in your notes, or you can turn uh, there. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so if you'll read this along with me, we'll get started. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. So I've got a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old in my house, and what that means is that we have a lot of toys. Um, and, and when you think about the toys, what I think of mostly in our house that I see all the time is we have a lot of Legos. Um, a lot of Legos, a lot of Lincoln Logs, and a lot of like the other building blocks. And, and I'm convinced entirely that somehow those things multiply at night. Um, I can wake up in the morning, and there may be only five on the carpet when I went to bed, and all of a sudden there's 40 when I wake up the next morning. And I don't know if you know this or not, this is a scientific fact. Um, no matter how many Legos you pick up, there's always six more underneath the couch or the bed. And the fun part of that is you find them when you're barefooted at night in the dark. That's when you find those, uh, and you let out a shriek and a, shri a shrill scream. It is not pleasant, Okay. So, but Legos are a big part of our lives, um, and, and our kids love Legos. And the thing I love about Legos is that it teaches you um, how, to, how to, at a rudimentary level, kind of build up. Um, anybody, whether you're a toddler or even an adult like me, because I pr proudly proclaim that I love Legos too, you can build with Legos. Um, there's not a certain age limit on, on building with these things. And what I love about watching our kids build with Legos is their imaginations come to life. Um, and you see all these crazy things, and so uh, they'll come to me and say, Dad, come look at this. Look what I built. And I'll walk in there, and, and they're like, man, this is the castle, and the princess lives in here, and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's just it's awesome to watch their imaginations and their minds at work. It's a lot of fun to be a part of that. And, and so in their minds, what they have constructed with Legos is this grandiose, huge, wonderful architectural masterpiece. And I love letting my kids play with Legos, and I love watching them play. But I'm a little more hesitant to give my kids a bunch of power tools and say, all right, try to build it in real life. Right? That would be a disaster. Um, I cannot imagine giving any of my kids, uh, you know, a power saw or, or even really, for that matter, a hammer and some nails. Um, because there would be a lot of trips to the ER if that happened, okay? That's, that's what would happen. Why? Because toddlers, children, have not been trained to adequately handle tools to build anything. Right? They don't know what they're doing. 
And for that matter, most of the time, I don't either. Um, they don't know what they're doing, and so what happens is they end up causing more damage than good. So when, when somebody becomes a master at a craft, so like let's say architecture or let's say carpentry or let's say general contractor, they didn't just become that overnight, right? What happened was somebody took time to invest in them, to teach them, to show them how these things work, to make sure they understood the project, understood the blueprints and what they're supposed to do, and so on and so forth. And I think what happens is, is that, that Christianity can kind of be boiled down into one of these two areas, either toddler or teacher. See, what happens is we, we know the Word of God. We become, we come to know Jesus. It's because we have recognized our sin before a holy God. We have recognized that the only way out of this sinful state that leads to death is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we recognize that it was his work on the cross and the resurrection that brings us that restoration. We recognize that. But oftentimes what happens is, is we refuse to go any further. We, we do what I call we get our fire insurance, right? Like we get saved from hell and we think, okay, I'm good. And so there's never any impetus or call to grow. It's just, well, I'm a Christian, and that's all I need to know. And, and what happens is when we take on that characteristic is we lose sight of exactly what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 3, and that is that we are to be teachers, not just consumers, but teachers of the gospel. We are to take what we know about Jesus and take what we know about the Word of God and make that famous among all nations, and not just in foreign countries or in foreign lands, but even here in our own communities, even here in our own families. This is the call of God. We must be able to learn, and as we learn, teach, because ultimately that is the legacy you will leave. Your legacy will be one of childishness and immaturity, or your legacy will be one for Jesus that is marked with patience and endurance. You cannot have it both ways. And this is the exact kind of landscape that Paul is, is facing when he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. This is the, the, the atmosphere that he was immersed in. These are Christians who exhibited no growth. They can fumble around and kind of know some answers to give, but in their minds, they've already achieved everything they need to know. There's no more need for growth. They think they've got it all figured out. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my life, and I continue to learn daily, however much you think you know, you, know, you tend to know less, right? I mean, you just don't know. Um, I had a professor uh, in college who used to say a phrase that I loved, and he would say, if you wanted to know me when I knew everything, you should have met me when I was in high school. But now that I've got a, a bachelor's degree, I figured out I didn't know quite as much. And he goes, then I got my master's degree and realized I didn't know anything at all. And now that I've got my PhD, I don't know anything about anything. That's what he would always say, and I love that, man. If you, if you, as we grow and mature, we realize that there is still so much more to grow in and learn. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But these Christians that were in Corinth, they understood some of the basic ideas. They had lost sight of the concept. And so what does Paul refer to them? First to them as infants, babies. 
And so let's, let's kind of look at that definition and that term that he's using and, and understand what he's talking about. Infinite here would have been those who knew Christ but had exhibited little growth where they should have been maturing. In other words, there was no mark of growth or spiritual maturity. None. When we go back to John 15 and we see that Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branch. And anyone that, ab- that abides in him will bear much fruit. These are people who, who frankly, their fruit was withering. It was not being uh, fruitful at all. Yeah, they were Christians in the, in the sense that they understood that, that they were saved through grace by Jesus, but they had, there was never any idea or immersion to grow and go deeper. It never happened. And so what happens is in their arrogance, they think, well, we've already got it figured out. We're ready for something deeper, something more. And so what Paul says is that he gave them milk. Well, what the milk is referring to is the doctrine of Christ. Listen, I gave you this. I I gave you what you needed to know to start. But just like a baby starts off with milk and then graduates to solid foods, that's what you were supposed to do, and you haven't done it. And and church, I want you to understand this. This is not just an indictment on the Corinth church. This is talking to us as well in a very deep and, un, and profound way. Um, what Paul does here is he highlights two different kinds of people, the natural and the spiritual. So what's the difference between those two? Well, the natural man does this. He does what he wants. He doesn't care about God's will or God's plan, and he has no desire for obedience or growth, not even trying. Not even stumbling forward. Just, I'm here, I got it, I don't need anything else. Whereas the spiritual man has obedience to God, teaches others how to follow God, and pursues God's will over his own will. It is not until we reach a point where we are pursuing his will over ours that we are able to effectively teach and communicate the gospel of Christ. How do you teach what you don't know? can't. Recently, uh, in fact, just two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to take some of our juniors and seniors uh, to Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and while we were there, uh, we, we purposefully did evangelism and, and witnessing to uh, the Mormon people there uh, in the LDS church. And, and what, what many of us might think of is, okay, you're going to Salt Lake City. That's like the home territory, man. You're going to find like the hardcore Mormons there. What we found was even at the temple, there were so many that didn't have an understanding of even basic theology that they believed. And and some of our students were were kind of perplexed by this. Like, man, I I thought they'd be a lot more in tune with what they believe and what they say and all this kind of stuff, and they weren't. And then it struck me, just like Salt Lake City is kind of the, the mecca for the LDS church, for the Mormons, I think in a lot of ways, Waco is kind of the mecca for Baptists. And I think in a lot of ways, we're very similar in the fact that if you were to ask many of us, even in this church, to identify what and why we believe about our faith, we might have a hard time answering. And that's not just an indictment on this church. It's an indictment on the Christian church as a total. Right? right? Well, just think about it. I don't know what the percentage would be, but how many people in this church alone do you think they were asked the question, why do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Why do you believe the Bible? What makes Christianity different would be able to answer that even at a rudimentary level. 
And the reason why people struggle with those things is because they have never learned and matured to the point where they could talk about it, where they could teach it. And that's exactly what we are called to do as Christians, is not only to consume, but to teach. The message of the cross as we get ready to celebrate Easter. The cross, yes, is about justification. But the cross is also about sanctification, which is a really fancy kind of $3 word that Christians use that just means growing in holiness. The only way that we grow in holiness to look more and more like Jesus is by saturating ourselves with the Word of God and then teaching the Word of God. You, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, those two things must be espoused. You cannot simply have the truth of Jesus in you and refuse to talk about it. It doesn't make sense. And so when Paul is writing this, what he's telling us is very simple. You in the pews, me up here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and would be willing to say, I am a believer in Christ, you are ministers. What happens so often, unfortunately, is that many congregants and people say, well, man, talking about Jesus and evangelism, that's, that's the job of, of the, the preacher and the pastors and the ministers. I got news for you. You're all ministers. As Christians, as believers in Christ, you are ministers to a dark world, and your charge is to bring light into the darkness. But how can you do this if you don't have any spiritual growth? There's no mark. What happens is we often end up fighting one another on, on things that are inconsequential, right? The, the church is very good at creating um, silos, we're very good at fighting about things that, that frankly just don't matter. We'll fight over music styles or the version of the Bible that's used or we'll fight over this or that or somebody's in my seat or whatever the case is. And what happens is when we do that, we've lost sight of the true vision that we were supposed to have. And that is to be unified to make much of Jesus and less of ourselves. All those other arguments make much of us. It's I want this and I want that. Therefore, I will start this division. I'll start this controversy. I'll, I'll start this fight because I'm going to get what I want. But for those who are mature in Christ, it's not about what you want. It's a hard truth. It's a hard lesson to learn. And we have to keep preaching it to ourselves every day. And this includes me, is that nothing is about you. Everything is for the glory of God. All things are for him and for his glory and pleasure. We must work. We must work together. And I love the imagery that Paul uses for himself and his fellow servants. He doesn't put a lot of esteem on himself. He doesn't say, look at me. Look at Apollos. Look at us. We, we are doing really well. We're the ministers and you should... You should see how good we are. It's not the imagery he uses. The imagery he uses is that of a migrant field worker. Why? Because he's saying it's not about me. If we are going to be servants and teachers, then we have to be humble. 
See, one of the things about toddlers, maybe you know this, is that there's not a whole lot of humility in a toddler. They tend to think that everything they do is the best, and it's all about them. Also, when it comes to toddlers, they're not really good at teaching someone else how to do what they're doing. They want to keep doing it their way, and if somebody does it the wrong way, in their opinion, there's a fight that breaks out. The difference between a toddler and a teacher is that a teacher is willing to learn himself and then teach others. A toddler has no regard for learning the right way or a better way and has no regard at teaching others how to follow through. He mentions that Paul and Apollos were there and that there were some divisions and factions that were going on because some say, well, I serve Paul and I serve Apollos. What he's saying is it's not about who's in charge. It's not about who you follow. Those people are means to the gospel. What matters is that you follow the gospel. So if you claim to be a part of God's work, if you claim to be a believer, then you should not give yourself or even your pastors that much esteem. Your pastors, your ministers, we are simply people who are fumbling along and stumbling forward to to make Jesus famous. It's not about your preacher. It's not about that. It's not about your status. It's about you serving the Lord. So would you build with Legos or lumber? And then we're going to jump down to, to verse 9. And we're going to talk about passing the test, and we're going to move through this a little quickly. Paul kept teaching the basics of the gospel. He's saying that it's about Christ and him crucified. And what happened to the Corinthians also happens in our lives sometimes. What, it, what they were saying is, well, okay, we got the Jesus part. We got that part. But we want more. We want to go deeper. And what Paul is trying to let them know is that there is nothing deeper than the gospel of Jesus. I think sometimes what happens is we get bored. We go, okay, well, I learned about Jesus in Sunday school a long time ago, and I understand this, I understand that. So, okay, what's next? And we try to, like, take a master's course in the gospel. What Paul is saying is, is no, 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 no. There's nothing greater than the gospel. There's nothing greater than the message of Jesus. There's nothing deeper than the message of Jesus. What they had missed was that they were trying to go deeper and go around the gospel, thinking there was something better, instead of realizing they needed to focus more on the gospel and let it be their source of wisdom and power. I want you to hear this. There is nothing that you will ever study that has more meaning and more depth than Christ and him crucified in the resurrection. Nothing. That is the very cornerstone that all things hinge on. You can't go deeper than Jesus. You can't go deeper than the gospel. What happens is instead of feasting on the food of Jesus and the gospel that is portrayed in his message throughout the Bible, we satisfy ourselves with what I call Christian junk food. And what I mean by that is Man, instead of, we start off with the milk, and then instead of going to the right thing, the sustenance that will sustain us and keep us and let us be able to teach and tell others, what we do instead is we start eating our own wisdom, eating our own ideas and our own thoughts and our own beliefs, and then we start to embrace the idea that maybe we have a better idea than God does. I love the, the way Pastor John Piper puts it. He says this, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. 
It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And what he's saying is, if we find ourselves without desire for maturity and teaching others and obedience and growth, it's not because we've received Jesus and are so satisfied in him. It's because we've bitten the lie that these other things can somehow bring us satisfaction of any kind. And so we're so full of the lie that we've lost sight of the truth. When Paul calls us to be laborers together, what he's saying is that you and me, just like Paul and just like Apollos and just like your pastors and just like your ministers, are teachers. And our job is to teach others not only the salvation and the grace through Jesus, but how to grow as Christians. How to, how to stumble along and, and at least have a mark of obedience in Christ. That's what he means when he calls us co-laborers. And here's what's amazing to me. God gives you and me the most amazing opportunity in the world. He gives us the chance to work with him. I want you just to let that sink in. This is holy God, almighty God, who spoke the world into existence, who is above all things, who, who is over all things, who is always everywhere, who is always good, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful. This God, this holy God, invites us to be a part of his work. And the arrogance of man is that we go, no thanks. No thanks. Oh, thank you, God, but no, I'm good. It's insanity. How humbling is it? And should it be that God would at all even regard us or care for us? The psalmist said that he goes, who is God that he would, or who is man that God would care for him or the son of man that you would care for us? That's what he's saying is, who are we that God would even regard us in any way but more especially love us and invite us to be a part of his plan? This is the same God that has given everything for us, and he wants you as his partner. Let's look again at verses 10 and 11 very quickly. We know this, that our work will be tested. Anything that is not built on Jesus will be burned up and will not be sustainable. Just this last week, one of the pillars of the scientific community, Dr. Stephen Hawking, passed away. And it was one of the great contributors of, of physics and science in many different ways. And I want you just to hear, though, what Hawking said. This was very recent before he passed away. He said, before we understand science, it's natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail and there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Folks, I want you to understand this. Stephen Hawking knows more about God right now than we do. And unfortunately, his work is being tested. And as many good things as he did in the name of science... All those things burn up like hay and straw, just like the word says. They're worthless. But for those of us who work and are tested and our things were for God and our work was in labor for him, 
what we find is that it's like putting gold or silver through a refinery. The more it goes through, the more it purifies. The more rich it becomes. We have to know what the final test is to build toward it. For instance, when we think about car manufacturers, car manufacturers build certain types of cars for certain types of reasons, right? There's a reason you don't see Ferrari minivans, okay? They don't, they don't make them. They don't have those. You'll never see a Ferrari minivan. If you do, let me know because that would be awesome. Um, but, but Ferrari make one kind of car. They make cars that go fast, right? They make fast cars. Why? Because that's what their name is. That's what they build for. They build cars for clients who want to go really fast and look really cool. We have to know what the test is to know what we're building for. And the final test is, what have we done to make much of the name of Jesus? That's the final test. And if we can look at our lives and look at our work and see that it has not been for that, then it will be burned up in the fire. It's worthless. We must realize that our test will determine if our life was wasted or completed. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, we're told that we need to treat her right. Who is her? The church. And I don't mean just Columbus Avenue. I mean the big C church, the, the group, the unifying body of believers that surround the world, the church. And what Paul uses here is a powerful image of a temple, and he says that you are a temple. He's not talking about one person. He's talking about us as Christians, as united believers. We are the temple of God. We are where the dwelling of the Holy Spirit takes place. And there is something very profound and incredible about that. We are the temple of God. Let that just soak in for a minute. When Solomon built the temple, it was the place where God dwells, and now God dwells within his church. That should stir our affections for Jesus, and stir our affections for God. Again, this almighty God who wants to use us, not only he wants to use you, but he chooses to dwell within you. As broken and corrupt as we are, he redeems that and then dwells with us. And here's what this passage tells us in 16 and 17. If you defile the church, God will destroy you. The church is God's holy place. And if you destroy God's holy work, there's a consequence to be paid. The imagery that I'll use is this, and I'll kind of start wrapping up with this. I've got thick skin. I work with youth, so I have to have thick skin, right? That's just the way it works. Um, I've got thick skin, and I can, take, I can take a lot of abuse. I can take a lot of punishment. Um, I can take people yelling at me or griping at me or screaming at me, whatever. That's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. However, if you talk to my wife that way, we're going to be a problem or two we're going to have. Why? Because I love my wife. And I love her more than I love myself even. And so I'm going to make sure that she is respected, that she is protected. And yet the imagery that we see over and over in the New Testament is we, the church, are referred to as the bride of Christ. Listen, God will protect his bride. And he will stand up for his bride. And he will watch out for his bride. In the same way that I would stand up and stop somebody from 
hurting my wife, how much more will God protect his bride? So when we attack God's church, when we do things that cause division, when we do things that cause siloing, what we've essentially done is we've said, I'm more important than God's church. We put the onus on us. Here's how I want you to think about this today as we close. The message of this passage is actually quite simple. It's not complicated. It's not difficult to understand. We can get caught up in our bickering. We can get caught up in our pride. We can get caught up in our own ideas. And we can never mature to the point of making Jesus Lord of our lives. We'll make him Savior, but we don't want to make him Lord. Or, you can acknowledge that he is both Savior and Lord, submit to him, learn, mature, grow, and then teach others what it means. You will either be a toddler or a teacher, but you cannot be both. And today, you need to figure out which camp you belong to. You need to figure out whether you have been making much of yourself or making much of Jesus. One of those two things will last and withstand the test of time. The other will fall away and be burned up. God, we love you. We love you not because of anything that we've done, but we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you are holy and you are good and you are righteous. We love you because you saw us in our helpless estate and in your holiness and your righteousness and your goodness. You created a way for us to get back to you. Father, my prayer today is that we would not be content with merely talking and understanding about Jesus, but that, Father, we would grow in Jesus and that as we grow in him, we would teach others what that looks like. Be with us. Lead us. Give us guidance and wisdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus.